Wait, come back over a little bit, Russ. Okay, there. I was trying to get y'all centered. Is, is it level? Is it even? We're all yeah. close to each other. Welcome to the Front Porch and Power Mississippi's weekly podcast adventure, vlog, whatever you want to call it. I am President Russ Latino. I'm here with communications guru Brett Kittrich. We've got a good program this week. We skipped last week because Brett was down sunning on the beach. Um, and we'll at talk Disney, at Disney at World, Disney World yeah. hanging out in Orlando. Uh, we'll talk a thank, little bit about you, that. Work. Thank you, work for that. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about the State Policy Network Conference, which occurred last week in Orlando. Uh, Empower Mississippi was nominated for a national award for its work around criminal justice reform, and I want to dig into that. We'll talk this week about the 20th anniversary of 9-11, obviously a sobering event that changed a lot of lives in the trajectory of this country and reflect back on it. Uh, but I wanted to start with something a, a little bit more lighthearted. For me, this is like Christmas at the beginning of, uh, of the fall where we get college football back. Exciting weekend, some great football, some unexpected uh, losses in the top ten this week. Great game between Georgia and Clemson. I see yeah. you're sporting your Ole Miss shirt. Uh, what did you take away from the, the weekend? Yeah, yeah, I thought we were all going to be wearing um, polos supporting our, our alma maters, our favorite team. I think the first takeaway was just happy to, to be back, to have some, some sense of normalcy. Um, college football just really in a lot of ways represents just America and sort of that, that normalcy was there and seeing the, the large stadiums across the country, it didn't matter, it wasn't a are you a Republican or Democrat type thing, it was just who do you cheer for. Uh, people were out and so Love to see that. I mean, love to see things like, you know, the Georgia-Clemson game. to have some good uh, first-week games. Obviously, Ole Miss and Louisville, as far as we're concerned, um, was of interest and beneficial. I think Mississippi State, you're sort of like, we got the W. Let's just leave it and move on. I've been there on opening weekends when Ole Miss lost to Jacksonville State. I would have taken a one-point win uh, in that game. And so just, just excited for things. Um, Sort of as much as things change, they kind of don't, though. Yeah, and, you know, we were talking about this before we started today. Um, and you're right, the stadiums were packed. Yep. People were excited to be back. There is a part of the country that has decided that it is willing to live with the risk of COVID, that they want to live normal lives again. I think that's right. And, I mean, you saw it, as I mentioned. It's, you saw it in Madison, Wisconsin, the, the clip of them for the third quarter, or the fourth quarter, where they do jump around where you just had the Pac Stadium all in red and white. Madison probably voted, the city probably voted 90% for Biden. Uh, Madison's a very liberal college town. To your reddest of places like College Station where you had over 100,000 people. Um, excited, Grove will be open for the first time. Obviously Junction was open this past weekend. And so it's just neat. It just it just feels good. It's, it's sort of hit different, it's almost like like you got chill bumps, like like if you were younger in a lot of ways. So it's neat. To see. I got to tell you that jump around tradition yeah. in Wisconsin is phenomenal. Like my wife and I were both kind of pumped and a little <laughs> jealous watching it on television. I agree. It reminded me a little bit, you know, at Vaught Hemingway, we used to do the whole lock the vault where we yeah. would join arms yeah. and do the sway. Yeah, it reminded me of that. A lot of good energy. You know, I've got a degree from Ole Miss. I know you do too. Uh, I've got a nephew that's playing football at Southern and a nephew that's playing football at State. Uh, and so I've had to become the sort of diplomatic football guy in Mississippi. You're such a politician. Um, well, no, no, it's a byproduct of my nephews and not politics at all. But 
But I will say, uh, Mississippi State obviously pulled out a game yeah. that looked like they were going to lose. Just take um, it. You know, USM it. is still in a rebuilding process, clearly, uh, coming out of that game. But uh, but I'm just glad college football is back. Yeah. It, it's, it's the thing that probably animates us more than anything else during the course of the year. It's sort of uh, middle-aged man uh, Christmas, as I mentioned earlier. So super excited about the season, everything it holds. It'll look, Ole Miss looked lights out last night. They did. Offense, defense looked good. I think that was sort of the storyline. Um, defense looked good. Um, so we shall see. We shall see. I mean, you still got the same teams you got to face in the SEC. Um, so it'll be a good September, October. So enough about the things that make us act like little boys. Let's talk about work, what you've been doing over the last week. You were down in Orlando at the State Policy Network yep. Conference. You know, for folks who aren't familiar with it, just talk a little bit about what State Policy Network is. Sure. sure. Well, State Policy Network is an organization that brings together groups like Empower, which are state-based, I mean, think tanks is the, the old-fashioned word, but basically organizations that promote public policy, work on public policy at the state level. So every state has at least one organization. In Mississippi, we obviously have Empower as well as Mississippi Center for Public Policy. Um, who are both representatives of SPN. And so just once a year for annual meeting, we get together. It's among the things that we do with SPN um, in terms of our work with SPN. But we get together for an annual meeting where we're able to network, share ideas, talk about the last year, talk about the, the year coming up. So just a great chance to, to meet with your peers. Um, every state is different. That's one of the uh, good things about SPN. It's not that uh, they we get any orders from them that you know is each state is working on their own things but we certainly look for areas on um, neat things other states are doing so it's just a great event yeah it's it's a great opportunity to share ideas with people who are like-minded who, who are dealing with similar issues Correct. in other states but very much along that idea of, of justice lewis brandeis and the laboratories of democracies Correct. in the states individual think tanks in a lot of ways are going their own way or focused on their own priorities um, and using their own tactics to try and advance those priorities. SPN pro provides sort of a facilitation of the ability to share those ideas and it's exciting. One of the things that was cool this year is that Empower is one of three state-based think tanks that were nominated uh, for a best issue campaign and ours was around criminal justice reform. We called it our second chances campaign. An awful lot of communications that was done. Sure. Tell us a little bit about, you know, one, what it means to be nominated for that and, and two, talk a little bit about the work that you and Joanna Holbert and our team did uh, really to push this uh, this issue campaign. Sure, as you said, one of three uh, groups nominated for best issue campaign um, did not win. I guess we'll, we'll start with that. Illinois Policy for their good work in killing the attempt to um, institute a progressive income tax in Illinois. Uh, lots of good stuff, but but sort of one of those cliche things happy to be nominated happy to be recognized i mean our team as we know um put a lot of work into um not just the government affairs side obviously but certainly the the communication side and, and talking to people saying you know what are the issues what what did you struggle with coming out of prison or what what you know what led you to prison and just trying to to see see those people for who they really are rather than maybe the statistic that we might have of people 
So, I mean, we probably had over a dozen stories during the course of the session on, on a wide variety of people from all over the state. Um, and, and just really, like I said, put a face on policy. Um, we've talked about this before. I mean, policy is about people, right? And so that that's what our that that's what our work is is for people. And so it's just neat need to be recognized for that work. Need to see the way it can change lives. Well, if you looked at the over dozen stories in this space, a ton of video production that we sure. did in this space to tell stories and do explainers. You know, a ton of radio and television interviews, a couple hundred media hits over the course of the session to really push parole reform. Sure. All of that stuff came together with what I think was a good government affairs effort to make sure that legislators sure. kind of knew the issue, understood why it was important, uh, how it would benefit them and their district. Um, ultimately, that yielded a public policy victory, uh, but also a recognition by the state policy network that our shop had done a good job of putting all those sort of component pieces together. You know, we talked a little bit about stories in that context. Obviously, that's something that we've focused on as sort of elevating the voices of people who are affected by public policy. You've recently told what I think is a pretty unique story, actually a couple. Uh, Michael Moore, who we've talked about in the past, was one of the first people, if not the first the person, first. Yeah. that was released under the parole reform that we worked on. Um, and then this past week, a really cool story about a lady named Julie Crutcher. I wonder if you wouldn't share a little bit about why you told that story and kind of what you learned uh, from from getting to know her. Yeah, I think it, it's interesting when you really get, as I was saying, when you really get to know people and can dive into their stories and sort of hear, you know, what it was like for them growing up. And sort of most people don't just end up in prison, right? There, there's a path the, that leads them uh, to that place that often is beyond their their circumstances or, or that certainly things that make it more challenging um, you know Julie you know had, had bad influences in her life her, her parents were divorced her mother spent most of her time working um, you know followed an older crowd that was into drugs and, and she went down that path um, she I think she said she spent seven or eight years. She was addicted to drugs over that time. She spent a year in prison. Uh, she had her sister, uh, one of her sisters, watching or raising her two kids at the time when she was in prison. She had one sister who was killed in a murder-suicide in, in a story that got a lot of attention locally. Um, and so just, just a, sort of, I guess, when you say people are kind of dealt a bad hand, she, she made bad choices. She 100% says that, you know, one of the things she told us, that was neat, she's like, the reason, you know, when she talks to her kids, the reason I wasn't raising you, the reason my sister was because, was because of my actions. But my actions don't have to define me. You don't have to be a statistic for the rest of your life. She went to prison, served her sentence, um, found work via rich went to went to rehabilitation to where she found work and for the past several years she's been working at Muse Bath has moved up there and, and just found that stability that she never had in her life she's now married has her kids at home and just on the surface right you would never know like oh yeah this person was obviously spent time in prison or, or had a drug addiction problem growing up 
and again, it's sort of like you, you can never tell, but at the same time, everyone has their own story. Everyone has a chance at redemption. No, it's it's incredible, and I think what you just hit on is is the perfect kind of closing point, which is hers is a story of redemption, right? Mm -hmm. There are so many people that have been dealt a bad hand sure. or go through things in life, whether it's their choices or other people's mm -hmm. choices, that put them in a bad spot. But that doesn't have to define who they are. Right. And she's found a way to be redeemed and as evidence, really, that, that people can make mistakes and then find that path to redemption. The other thing that I think is just so pivotal from her story is the role that work plays. Correct. The ability to find a job, and we know this not just because of Julie Crutcher, but because of statistics from across the country, the ability to find a job if you've had a tr had trouble, mm -hmm. if you've been formerly incarcerated, is the number one indicator if you're going to get back in trouble or not. Um, and so that's why work is so vitally important, not just for people who are coming out of those bad circumstances, but candidly for everyone, because it's how we find purpose, it's how we find meaning. In a lot of ways, it's what we're proud of at the end of the day, that we've accomplished something through work. Um, and so it's one of the reasons that we focus on it here. But I think Julie's story is an incredibly powerful story. Would highly recommend if you've got an opportunity uh, to check it out at empowerms.org. Um, and it's probably playing on a Facebook page sure. near you sure. as well. Facebook, YouTube. And yeah, and just to, to um, reiterate that, is that every person we've talked to has said that about work, about the ability to get a job, how much it meant to them. And it's sort of one of the things we take for granted or, you know, or for whatever reason we don't think about it, what a crucial thing that is. And, I mean, there are, you know, significant barriers for those leaving prison. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so, so for her to be able to find this work um, you know, changed her life. Brett, I'm super proud of, of the work that we are doing uh, in terms of storytelling, identifying people, um, and, and really connecting others to the reality that people who are in the system are uh, are people, right? right? That have made mistakes and are, are capable of more. You know, this is the the 20th anniversary this week of September 11th, and you and I have reflected on September 11th a couple different times yeah. uh, in recent weeks, really in in different context. You know, I I think about where I was and the experience, and I think about where we are now, it's really hard for me to grasp that it's been 20 years. I, I spent the weekend uh, watching video from 9-11, you know, 20 years ago, and every bit of that raw emotion comes back when you watch those grainy photos or videos uh, of that day, and I can vividly remember uh, sitting in my dorm room, you know, having watched uh, some of this, the coverage around the first tower being hit and seeing the second plane come into the second tower and realizing this wasn't some sort of accident. This was legitimately an attack. The United States was under attack. And that for a person that grew up in the United States in a fairly safe era, post-Cold War, that vulnerability um, hits you like a ton of bricks because you don't think something like that can happen. And it, it really changed the way I think a lot of people think about security and safety in this country. I'm curious, what was your sort of 9-11 experience? I know you're slightly younger than yeah. I am. I'm guessing you would have been in was, early high school. I was a junior. Okay. Yeah, yeah, junior in high school. You know, I guess 
I mean, a couple of the images or, or thoughts, and we'll plug your op-ed. You'll have, depending when you hear this, um, you'll have an op-ed talking about running the Daily Journal and um, various um, channels uh, reflecting on 9-11 and sort of what it means and where we are as we're talking about here. Yeah, I mean, I was a junior in high school. Um, so, yeah, I mean, maybe even more innocent, I guess, right? My interests were, you know, sports, you know, driver's license, things like that. Um, you know, no, important, I important things, I guess. I understand. School, I suppose. Um, things that sixteen-year-old yes, males think that, about. That you yeah. should think about. Um, and yeah, sort of to what you say, is this real? Sort of, you know, what does this mean? It's like I don't, I didn't know. I guess I could have told you who the president was. Probably not a whole lot more. Um, I had no real interest in politics at the time or, or following policy. This was sort of what got me interested in it. Um, but, you know, one of the things that stands out uh, was before 9-11, you know, you saw very few American flags on houses. I remember afterwards, such the rush, like there was a huge black market for American flags. They were paying $30, $40, $50. Um, to have a flag, people have flags on trucks or, or license plates or, you know, obviously on your house. And so that was just sort of a neat thing to say, like, as you like to talk about how we came together, like we never have, and certainly 20 years later, it feels like we couldn't be further apart as a country, right? But to, to see that moment um, when we could come together, particularly as a 16-year-old, it's like, okay, we, we can do this. Well, and, and so many of those moments for me revolve around President George W. Bush. And it, right. I, I know there are people who don't like him. There are people who probably like him on some things and not on others. Um, I certainly didn't agree with, a, on a, with him on all public policy. Yeah. But, but so many of my sort of good memories of him were how he handled yeah. things during 9-11. You know, we've talked about a couple of those stories in the past, but like the Andy Card story, where President Bush is literally reading to a group of elementary kids and Andy Card has to walk up and whisper in his ear that we've just been attacked. Um, and sort of the resolve of the president to know that he couldn't panic in front of those kids. To finish reading that book, no doubt thinking in his mind, you know, this is a big moment, right? Like I've got to show a kind of leadership um, that maybe I didn't even anticipate having to show. And then you fast forward to that, um, him standing on a rubble pile with right. his arm around a fireman and that bullhorn um, and that just sort of spontaneous moment, it still gives me chills, yeah. Yeah. Um, where he talks, you know, somebody hollers, hollers out, we can't hear you. Yeah. Um, and yeah. he goes on that riff where he says, you know, soon the people that, that brought down yeah. these buildings are going to hear us. Um, that kind of stuff, um, I think, did unite the country. I think for, for a brief moment, People put aside the differences that they had with each other in this country and recognized there was an external threat and there was something worth fighting for and defending in the United States. And I would argue that that now we need we, we don't need an external threat, right? But we need to recognize as a country that even though there are big differences between the way we think about things, America is an ideal that is worth defending and fighting for. Um, and if there's anything we can take away from 9-11, you know, I pray that we never have another incident like that. But our people are capable of banding together. Um, they're capable of showing that kind of camaraderie and compassion and love for one another. 
And, and I think that's what we need as a country. Yeah, right. And to say that unity didn't mean everyone agreed on everything, right? The, the people who were pro-life did not, you know, or the people who were pro-choice did not all of a sudden agree on that, right? But they agreed, as you talked about, um, what America is, what it needs to be. And I guess that question, uh, you know, was sort of, how do we get there? Is it the fact that things are just so political in a way to where we had that unifying event to where politics were sort of secondary? Now it's almost like politics is just a 24-7 sport, right? I think there's an argument that um, discomfort breeds unity and that in a lot of ways we're too comfortable as a country. Like, if you think about the things that we're fighting over right now, the cultural battles that come up every 24 hours, you know, sure. sort of these cycles of outrage in the news, they're, they're relatively trite things, uh, but they suck up so sure. much energy sure. and they, they carry with them so much intensity. And I think a part of that is like we're just too comfortable um, with what we've got, so we have to start all these like small fights, right? Um, I, I would love to think that we could apply the kind of energy that we see on a day-to-day -day basis in political debate to solving important problems like poverty in America, or how do we improve our education system, or how do we make sure there's opportunity in this country for the next generation instead of fighting over, you know, the war on Christmas or whatever the the outrage du jour might be during the during the day. Um, you know, I, I don't know I don't know the magic switch to get us there. Right. I, I know that this country is capable of more than what it's currently showing. Um, and I think at Empower, you know, we're not trying to change the entire country, but what we are trying to do is to present a vision for a better Mississippi where people don't have to be divided between Democrat and Republican, African American or Caucasian. Um, that doesn't mean we have to agree on everything, but we can agree on the goal, which is a better Mississippi. And I think if people go into that with good faith, there's an opportunity for us to make a real difference. So this is it for this week's well Front said. Porch. Well said. Um, appreciate you being here. Brett, thanks for, uh, for being a part of the show again today, and we'll be back next week.